0: Let's pray together and we get into this evening's teaching. Father, we want to thank you. We commit this time to you once more. We thank you for scripture always. Holy Spirit, will you come? Will you please be with me and be with my brothers and sisters as we get into this teaching? Anoint your words, O oh Lord, so that it will go forth and not return to your void. I pray also you prepare hearts, Lord, to receive so that we can respond correctly. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is not an easy passage to talk about. When I read it, and I suppose you might have that same feeling also, when I read it, I don't like to underline any part of this passage. I don't really want to revisit it too much. But let's look at the context. I must first remind you that this passage is still within Matthew chapter 10. We've been going through this teaching for a while, and Matthew chapter 10 is Jesus' second discourse as recorded by Matthew. And this is important for us to know because what we are studying in this passage, we must understand it in light of what we have already considered in the previous teachings. If you take it out of context or just by itself, you may Interpreted wrongly, huh? or you can come to uh, wrong conclusions based on that. So let's do a very quick review. I think that will be helpful for us. In the very first part in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, in the teaching team, Jesus, Jesus calls 12 and appoints them to be apostles. And we went through the points that they were first aligned with Jesus, then authorized by him, followed by an appointment by Jesus and then they were sent out on assignment for Jesus. But in the second teaching, as you go, verses 5 to 15, he gives them instructions. He says the very first thing you do is you must preach the kingdom. The word of the kingdom must be declared, but as you declare it, demonstrate the kingdom. There will be signs, there will be wonders, you can cast out demons and all that, and this is what you do as you move out on assignment. But don't worry about your provision. Everything will be taken care of. But please take note. Some will accept you and some will reject you. Now on the point of rejection then, he then says, you watch this, I'm now sending you as sheep amongst wolves. So in the teaching, disciple sheep, we know that if we are sheep, then we are disciples and we are disciples, we are sheep, we are getting out there, there's a whole bunch of wolves out there. So be prepared. It's not going to be a walk in the park. uh? It's not going to be this smooth journey that we would like to have. Then he says, beware of men. And I took time to share with you four categories that we observed from that passage in verses 16 to 25. What kind of categories must we be concerned with? One, religion. Religious institutions can come against the kingdom of God. Uh, Governments. As best as they want to help the people uh, in their own interests, with their own agendas, secular governments uh, will not take to a kingdom agenda too kindly. Family or friends, some of these would give you up, hand you over to the authorities, betray you. And we spoke about how everything will be revealed. There's a tracking system and nothing is hidden, especially in these days where our digital footprints are concerned. And finally, where the world of the society is concerned, Jesus says, they will hate you. <laughs> you will be hated by society at large. Eh? Christians are not going to be like the well-loved people. In fact, they will be hated because they hated Jesus first and they will hate you. And then we get into the fourth teaching entitled, do not fear. That was the last one. In verses 26 to 31, it says, don't worry about them. Do not fear them. Don't even fear death. Don't fear men. If you want to fear someone, fear God because He's the one that is going to have power over everything, your soul, over hell at the same time. And then it ends with a wonderful word of assurance to say you are more precious. You are worth more than many sparrows. Balancing that fear of God, although it's healthy and it's good, it is this whole idea of the assurance of the love of the Father. And with these four teachings, then Jesus now comes to verse 32. Therefore, and that's the conclusion. He makes another point here and he summarizes, therefore, whoever confesses me before men. Now, I don't have to tell you who are these men now, right? It's not your best friend or people close to you. It's people who might come against you. And that's why you need to remember these points, that the context and the backdrop of this passage is that of opposition, persecution and even the possibility of death. And the question we want to answer tonight is, Will you confess or deny Jesus in such situations? Also, at the same time, confessing and denying Jesus here is not about believing him or not believing him at the point of salvation. It's not about whether you've said the sinner's prayer or not, whether you're baptized or not, whether you have a church membership certificate or not. That's not the point. It is about the conviction and the evidence of having declared this faith in Jesus and holding on to it no matter what the outcome might be. And how will I respond? How will you respond if or when something happens? I'm here to suggest to you that it all depends how seriously you take the words of Jesus and how you then prepare yourself from this point forth. The few verses that we have just read, did you notice? It's full of contrasts, (laughs) lots of contrasts, right? And Jesus employs this literary device to its full to make a very strong point. It's almost like this or that, and it's an extreme of things. It's a contrast. And I believe he's, he's making it so serious and so important because he's telling all of us, don't miss this. Don't miss this. is how important this is. And as I was preparing this, I noticed at least seven contrasts. So if you're ready, let's jump in. Contrast number one. Between two words, confess, deny. Therefore, whoever confesses me, and then later on in verse 33, but whoever denies me. Let's look at this word confess. It means to agree with, to consent, to admit, or to acknowledge. And the word confess, the word con means together or with, alongside. And fess, profess means to say. You're saying something that you agree with. You're standing with something or with someone or you're standing with a fact and it's a truth. So to confess here, Jesus is saying, will you confess me publicly? Will you acknowledge me openly? Now today, this is a very important point for us to consider and for us to note because the world is saying to us today, keep your faith private. Private. Don't shove your beliefs against me or down my throat. What you believe is what you believe. uh? What you want to do and how you want to live, that's none of my business, and how I want to live is none of your business. But if we look at confess here, to acknowledge openly, that means it's no longer just a private faith, although it can be a personal one, but there needs to be a public declaration. That people, when they see you or when they hear you, they should be able to discern or see clearly and know that you stand for something. You believe in someone. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to mention Jesus in every sentence. You don't have to be a hallelujah person or praise the Lord person. But it does mean that you represent Jesus in all aspects of your life. Whether it's your words, your decision, your actions, in every situation, do you confess Him openly? Do you acknowledge that you are believing in Him, therefore you are following Him? So to confess Jesus is then to agree with, number one, who He is, number two, what He says, and number three, what He stands for. You don't just confess and say, okay, I believe in Jesus, and you stop down there. Right, But what does he say? Do you agree with that? If you do, then would you align with that and would you obey his commands and do what he tells you to do? And what he stands for, will you stand firm? And this confession is not just amongst people who like you or agree with you and you can agree with me, I can agree with you. That's the easy part. In this context, it's declaring it even before those who may oppose you, and in some situations, violently. Let's look at the with deny. And so the opposite of confess here is to deny, and it has a meaning of to reject, or to refuse, or to not know or not recognize this person. That's what deny means. Of course, we know the famous uh, story of Peter who denied Jesus. We'll look at that story in a, a little while, a little bit later. But how can we deny Jesus? How does one deny Jesus? Looking at scriptures, let me give you at least three things that we must be concerned or be careful about, about denying Jesus. Consistent with the context that we have just been talking about, we can deny Jesus by giving up instead of enduring. And so when a heat Is turn up when the hard times come, when things don't go your way, you can give up on Jesus, you can give up on your beliefs, you can give up on his teachings, and you do not endure. You say, Oh, but I didn't give up Jesus, ma. But you gave up everything that he stood for. And so, in that sense, you did not bear through, you did not endure. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. Consistent with Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 onwards. Now you must notice that Paul made this statement after teaching about the athlete, that you've got to be training and you've got to run well, about the soldier, that you are to endure hardship, And you're not to be focused on the things of this world, but you are there to please your master. And number three, as a farmer, right? As you plough something and you plant something, you persevere, you endure, you're patient, you, you wait until the thing comes through. So once again, it's about hardship, about being a disciple, talking about perseverance when you're moving on assignment with Jesus. So this is one first way that we can deny Jesus. The second way is that we can deny the person of Jesus as the Christ. And so people can say, He's not the Christ. Or some may say, He's not the Son of God. Others will say, He's just a man. He's not equal with God. And so that's one other way that someone can deny Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. There are certain cults or even certain religions where they acknowledge the person of Jesus, right? But they do not regard Him as the Son of God or as equal to God. And when we talk about the Antichrist, we're not saying capital A Antichrist. We are looking at the Small a, Antichrist. That means someone who is against the Christ or someone who replaces, instead of Jesus, he or she replaces with another Jesus. We must be careful also because Jesus today is being redefined. There are many other Jesuses. There's a hip Jesus, a cool Jesus, a never condemn you Jesus, you know. Uh, And there's another Jesus Remember, to confess Him means to agree with who He is, what He stands for, and everything that He says. And so if we start to change the character and the nature of Jesus, then we, perchance, might have denied Him also. The third one, we could also deny Jesus through destructive heresies and false teachings. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord, who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And so if you twist the teachings of Jesus, if you start to make up some teaching of your own, you have denied the Lord who has bought you. You have changed the teachings of Jesus. Jude 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so someone who comes and turns the grace of God into license and treats it and presumes upon this grace, takes it in vain, according to this passage, it's saying that you have denied The person of Jesus. You have misunderstood his grace. You have twisted it. And so to deny, to reject, remember, to reject or to refuse to twist the teachings of Jesus is to deny him. And we ask ourselves, is that prevalent today in our time? There's another spirit. Is there another gospel? We're twisting all these things. And most of the time, We're trying to rebrand Christianity so that we can be more acceptable and more attractive. We're we're trying to get the world to love us. But if you read this context, Jesus is saying, don't deny me, confess me. Against what kind of a backdrop? It's not a I love you backdrop. (laughs) It's a I don't like you very much backdrop. And it's funny, right? Jesus is saying the world will hate you. But we are trying to make the world like us. And so we are twisting it, we are turning it. I'm not saying go out there and be hated by the people, make people hate you. That's not the point. I'm saying that as best as you live according to the principles of Jesus, he's already warned us. It will not go out well. There's an antichrist spirit. It's demonic. There's a spiritual opposition against the people of God. And so the very first contrast, big deal, confess, Deny. We've got to get this right, huh? because that's what this teaching is about. To confess Jesus is not just to believe Him, but also to agree with Him, to acknowledge His Word, to acknowledge the ways of the Kingdom. It's to align fully with Him that we may obey Him, no matter what happens. To deny Jesus does not only refer to apostasy, i.e. to, to give up the faith, but also the rejection and the refusal of His teaching and His ways, especially in the face of challenges and threats. Contrast number one. Let's look at a few more contrasts. The second contrast is before man and before God. How we represent Jesus before men will determine how Jesus presents us before God. So if we understand this contrast, the question for you is, which is more important to you? How are you wanting to face man and how would you like to face God? Are you worried about your face before men, and not so worried about how you will see God? How we appear before men will one day pale in comparison to how we are presented before God. Don't miss this contrast. So, here again comes that reminder: don't fear men. How you are representing Jesus before men, do not be afraid of them. Represent him clearly, represent him well and adequately. Do not fear men, but fear God once more. Fear God. Because one day, we will stand before God and Jesus will present us before God. So contrast number two, before man, before God. You choose which is more important for you. Contrast number three, on earth, in heaven. What's going to happen here on earth and what's going to happen there in heaven? What we say and how we live on earth has heavenly implications. We've got to remember this all the time because much of today's teaching in the church seems to be how we can get through life here, how we can have a better life, how we can have the best things right here. Do we talk about heaven anymore? Do we talk about the eternal things? That is what's going to last forever. Our time here is temporary, and yet we're trying to make so much out of here. What we're doing here actually prepares us for what we will have when we actually get to heaven or in eternity. And so the focus is not about earthly survival, the focus must be eternal significance. So don't miss this contrast man versus God. Earth versus heaven. We're talking big things down here, important things. Don't miss the big picture of what Jesus is saying. Contrast number four, your father, my father. And this is an interesting point to observe. You realize that in Matthew chapter 10, he has mentioned father twice and it has always been your father. In verse 20, he says, don't worry what you're going to say when you're dragged before the council and, and all the big guys. The spirit of your father will give you the right words. It's your father. And then later on in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, right? That not one of these things will happen. The sparrows will not fall to the ground. Your hair will not drop to the floor. Um, without the knowledge of your father or without the will of your father, And so this is your Father. And this is the assurance that is given to the disciples, or to us, of the guidance and the knowledge of our Heavenly Father for all of His children. That's to assure you, God will guide you. God's going to watch over you. God knows everything that happens to you. God will not be surprised because either He has allowed it or He has not allowed it. This is your Father. And Jesus is assuring the people, and I want you to be assured of that too. But suddenly, this is contrasted with similarly two mentions so far in 10 chapters of my Father. And in Matthew chapter 32, we just read, right? If you confess me before men, I will confess before my Father. If you deny, I will deny before my Father. So this is one mention. The other mention is found in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of, whose father? My father, not your father, my father in heaven. And if you look at these two passages, you realize that both mentions have to do with final judgment. The final acceptance or rejection. And this is why it's so important. In Matthew 7, where we talk about the people saying, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, I I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, remember, these are the guys who have performed miracles, signs and wonders, prophesied in His name, cast out demons. And yet Jesus says, I never knew you. In other words, I reject you. I deny you. Depart from me. Why? You who practice lawlessness. You cannot declare Jesus and not live according to his way. And so in front of his father, he says, I don't know who this guy is. And in Matthew chapter 10, this passage we're going through, I will confess or deny before my father. It all has to do with final judgment. And here's the point I want you to see and not miss. You see, all of us are children of God. If we believe Jesus, we have the spirit of adoption, we cry, Abba, Father, we are children of God. But do you agree with me that Jesus has a special place as Son? Capital S, Son of God. Special place. No one can take that place. God the Father watches over all His children. He hears us. He answers us. But it is not for our wants, it's not for our comforts, but that we can love and serve Jesus wholeheartedly. That's the whole idea. Whenever it says, you ask my father for everything and anything he will give to you, it's always in the context of serving the will of the kingdom and serving the king. But on the final day, when we talk about final judgment, only the word of Jesus will matter on the final day. Who is finally accepted? Who is finally rejected? Jesus says, my father will listen to me. This is it. God the Father will listen to God the Son. Jesus will have the final say. Jesus will have the last word. Can you see this contrast? You and I will say, Our Father. And Jesus says, When you pray, pray, Our Father. Correct. We have a general privilege. We're all children of God. But on the final day, don't miss this, the Son of God, He goes, my father, why because my word will count. My say is the last say, the last word. With that, we move and we extend the next contrast contrast number five our word versus Jesus's word. How we live for Jesus will determine what he will say about us. How we live, what we say the decisions that we make, how we represent Him, will determine what He says about us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, let me read this to you. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Our words, our behaviors, everything would declare or reveal how we have confessed Him, aligned with Him, and obeyed Him. Jesus is the judge. When He comes back, He will judge. He comes as the final judge. And He will give His verdict, and that will stand. All our words on that day will account for nothing. There will be no more excuses. Do you remember? Everything will be revealed. Nothing will be hidden in the last teaching as I shared with you. So Jesus has the last word. We must be convinced on this one. Okay? There will be no more bargaining. There will be no more, But, but he, uh, she, uh, no more. There will be no more excuses. Our words will not matter on that day. Jesus has the last word. Now what this means also is that right now, on that day, we, have, we don't have the final say. But right now, we also do not have the final say. We can't pass any judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul was telling the church in Corinth, Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. And so I can't judge you how you will be finally. In the same way you can't pass a judgment on me how I will be finally. Because one day, everything will be revealed. Nothing will be hidden. And Jesus will have the last word. Jesus will have the final say. However, and I want to say this however loudly, however, we must judge and evaluate one another. He's like, huh? But you just told me that we're not supposed to judge. How come you now tell me that we're not supposed to judge? We can't judge with finality. But we must now evaluate one another, help each other, so that we can Provoke one another to live rightly for Jesus, in accordance with His ways, so that we might be found faithful so that we can one day stand before Him and not worry about that last word. So do we judge? No. Do we judge? Yes. You need to understand this. You cannot have a blanket statement and say, "Oh let's not judge. La. Bible say, do not judge then you only read one verse out of context in the first place. We cannot judge finally. Jesus has the final say. He has the last word. But we should help one another with grace, with love. Helping each other, provoking one another, evaluating, if you don't like the word judge, so that we can stand before Jesus on that final day. See, what He says to His Father about you and about me will stand. To the Jews, this is a huge claim because to them, only God has the final word. Here comes Jesus. Hello, I will talk to my Father and my Father will defer to me. What I say goes. In other words, I am as good as God. I am equal to God. I am God. Jesus goes on with another contrast and He explains Himself. Contrast number six, peace versus the sword. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, this is a very surprising line. As you read this, you're wondering, wait, hang on. Didn't Isaiah prophesy that he shall be called the prince of peace? And if he is the prince of peace, if he comes, does he not usher in peace? Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so, did He not come to bring peace? At the same time, His gospel, Paul says, is called the gospel of peace. How do we understand this? And how about the the angels? Remember the choir of angels that appeared to the shepherds at the time of the birth of Jesus? In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus was born Prince of Peace. He brought peace, didn't He? I mean, we sing this in our Christmas carols. But if you would study this verse and understand and read from the commentaries, the commentators now agree that this King James Version And the New King James Version, this translation, it doesn't do justice to what the text actually says. And so they provided a better translation, and it reads like that. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. So it's not everyone. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now who is God pleased with? And here we see the concept of shalom, a wholeness, a restorative product, our relationship with God and walking in harmony and in alignment with God. And this we have in Christ. For those who have believed in Jesus, in Christ we have peace. If we are in Christ, then God looks upon the work of Jesus And He's pleased with His Son as we are hidden in Christ. At least for this time, He excuses us by His grace as He allows us and provokes us to live and grow in righteousness. So what are the promises of peace that we have in Christ? For one, we have peace with God. We were once enemies of God, but now... We are His friends. This is what it means to say that we have peace with God through Christ. Secondly, in Christ, humanity now has a new humanity. It's called one new man in Christ. Previously, it was the Jews versus the Gentiles, the Gentiles versus the Jews, God's chosen people against the others, the Gentile nations. But now, whoever comes into Christ, whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile, we form a new humanity called in Christ, a people in Christ. So we have peace. He's that peace that has broken down every wall of division. Whatever your race might be, it makes no difference to us now because we are in Christ. And so we have peace with one another. And because of that, we have now In the body of Jesus Christ, in the church, in the kingdom community, we have peace in the body of Jesus Christ. And this shalom, this promise of shalom is available only to those in Christ. I'm sorry, those who are not in Christ, you will not have this. Read the Bible. It's very, very clear. If you remain an enemy of God, He is against you. He is not pleased with you you can never get onto his right side if not for Jesus. But in this world, you know that as much as we want to live in peace with other people, there can be great challenge. And so we have a promise as we live out in obedience that as we face uncertainties and the toughest of times, even persecution and also death, we can have a shalom a peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in who? Through Christ Jesus. We have this shalom. And the greatest promise must be this, that one day, one day, God, the God of peace, will crush Satan under our feet. Our feet. How cool is this, right? He crushes, but it's under our feet. Shortly, shortly, Oh, we pray for that day to come. We have that shalom, and that shalom will conquer Satan, and the entire shalom will be experienced. But in the meantime, in the meantime, in the eyes of opponents, our faithfulness to Jesus Christ will not result in peace, but possibly bring a sword. This is the word of Jesus. He's saying, I know you want to live as best as you can. You want to be at peace with everyone if possible. But it's not you, is he? It's them. They are coming against a kingdom people. The enemy is not about peace. Satan is not about peace. Demonic powers are not about peace. They are at a spiritual battle. The war is still going on. And so if you declare Jesus, not that he wants to bring trouble, but he will. That's why he's saying to you, be careful. Because I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against a mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, this list is not exhaustive. Jesus is not saying he's just limited to this group of people, no. But he uses family members to illustrate the closest of relationships, Imagine, if those who are closest to you can turn against you, what more those who have nothing to do with you, right? They couldn't care less. This can extend to friends, it can extend to others. And this sword, the effect of Jesus in our lives and the effect of our obedience and our confession of Jesus will cut, will divide, and it might even kill relationships. Jesus was quoting from an Old Testament reference in Micah chapter 7, verse 6. In verse 5 of Micah 7, Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. That's what he was quoting from. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. See, what this passage is saying, there'll come a day you can't trust anyone. There'll come a day, whatever you're going to say, is going to be divulged, it's going to be given over to the authorities. Whatever you WhatsApp, whatever you email, whatever you post, can be shared and can be taken out of context. You have to look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In biblical times, this was what happened to God's people. They were turning against one another. And the prophet was prophesying this. You fast forward to modern times in Nazi Germany. The Jews had to be very careful where they live, how they move about their whereabouts would be given over to the authorities and they will be arrested and you know it resulted in the Holocaust. Today it happens in certain countries where Christians are persecuted. Families giving up their own family members because of honour, because of religion, because of anything else. My question, and you have to ask this, will it happen in greater intensity to God's people in the future? Now is it a near future? I don't know. Is this passage eschatological? Yes, there's a hint of it. It happened then. Will it intensify? Very likely. So it's not that we don't experience it now, or that that never happens to us. I think our question for ourselves is, are we prepared? If and when it does happen, how will you choose? Who will you choose? Will it be your father, your mother, or will it be Jesus? Will it be your husband? Or will it be your wife? Or will it be Jesus? If it comes to a, to a crunch, is it son, your daughter, or is it Jesus? And Jesus is exaggerating to a point using family members because these are the closest of relationships and I know it would tear our hearts if we had to choose and we come to a point where we have to make a decision. But at this point, He reminds His disciples using this passage. And he says, look, I must take first place. I must take first place. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me, not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me, not worthy of me. Now, this is hard for us to even understand these days. In those times, this would not have been a very big surprise, not a surprising statement. The master or the rabbi in their relationship, the rabbi is regarded like a spiritual father. And the disciple regards the rabbi even higher than his own parents or his own father. It's been said that if a disciple sees his rabbi and the father in trouble, he's expected to save his rabbi first. That was the culture of the days. That was the norm. So what Jesus was saying or demanding was not something that was extreme. It was, it was expected of in those days. He's saying, I've got to take first place over everything. I'm not just the master. I am the king. But even as you consider this, allegiance to the king does not mean negligence of the marriage or the family. Don't take it to to such an extreme that you follow Jesus and that's good, but everything else you you throw to the dogs and you don't care anymore. This is not consistent with Scripture. You've got to hold the balance or the tension correctly. Scriptures tell us we are to honour our father and our mother. Jesus of all people, would not break this commandment. But God comes first. And so as we honor and look after our parents, we honor God and we follow Jesus. He takes first place. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But your wives do not come first. Jesus comes first. Wives, submit. Love, obey your husbands. But your husbands don't come first. Jesus takes first place. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke them to anger. Bring them up in the admonition and the training and the fear of the Lord. We are to be Christ-centered, not children-centered. And today, as parents, we've got to remember that. Especially in Singapore, where we tend to be more child-children-centered than we are Christ-centered. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, that we are to provide for our own households. If not, this person who does not provide has denied the faith. That's how serious it is. You see, it's not just denying Jesus. If you don't live according to His ways, you have denied the faith, and He is worse than an unbeliever. And so Jesus takes first place. Allegiance to the king does not mean negligence of the marriage or of the family or of your other devotional duties and responsibilities. Love your parents, spouses, children, but Jesus takes first place. Fulfill your marriage and family responsibilities, but Jesus takes first place. If we can understand this principle, You'll see how it's worked out in the family and where there's peace and where it will bring a sword. If we have believer versus unbeliever, it's very obvious, right? There will be tensions because of different value systems and, and so on. But even in a household of believers, if one is a worldly believer and one is a kingdom disciple, will it bring a sword? Possible, isn't it? Right? One wants to live for Jesus. The other one will say, why must you be so fanatical? And they will fight. And the sword will come in. There will be tension. If the family has a family agenda to pursue versus a kingdom agenda that either one or two members of the family wants to be faithful to, you'll have a tension. You will fight. Family is to come Suddenly, all the filial piety, all the Chinese Confucianism will come in. Jesus doesn't feature anymore. Suddenly, you know, oh, no, cannot, no. You must be a doctor, engineer, architect and all that first. I don't care about Jesus call you for ministry or whatever to Siberia or something like that. There will already be attention. Are you following, you see? So the principle is very clear where that is concerned. But think with me. Imagine, if every member of that family or that marriage aligns with Jesus and with one another. And there's a submission to a higher authority, to a kingdom cause and a kingdom agenda. There will be less of a likelihood of the sword coming, yes? There will be a shalom that will come in. Why? Because we learn to submit to one another. We learn to submit to a kingdom agenda. Whatever we may be doing, we know we are serving a same cause. We will Make the sacrifices necessary, not just for this one person, but we're making a sacrifice because of Jesus. And then you're willing to work out arrangements, you know, you, it might be for a different season, different time, but there is shalom, there is peace. And you hold that tension together. See friends, Jesus must take first place. And He takes first place over all relationships and over our lives also. Paul made it very clear, right? He says, if there's an unbelieving spouse and he or she leaves, then let the person go. You see that the sword has come into it. We don't chase this person away. Don't be a Jesus fanatic until that person cannot tahan, cannot stand. I mean, you have to do your part that you don't become a loony Christian you live correctly. And if the person still says, I can't take this because now Jesus is first and I'm second, then Paul says, let this person go. Over our lives, the Lord says, take up the cross, otherwise you're not worthy of me. Now, this is not surprising. Remember, it's at the end of chapter 10. And chapter 10 is all about a warning about persecutions hard times, difficult things, and taking up the crosses, you be ready that there is a chance they might crucify you. There's a chance they will kill you. You will lose your life. And if you do come to that eventuality, then so be it. Keep following and keep confessing Jesus. And he says, if you don't follow through, then you're not worthy of me. He repeats this three times. It's like he's emphasizing. If you don't do that, if you do this, or you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of me. And that word not worthy means undeserving. Deserving of what? You don't deserve me confessing your name before the Father. But if you will follow through and you, you will stand your ground, you confess and you stay faithful, then you deserve me confessing your name before the Father. I know this sounds very demanding, right? it's almost unachievable isn't it when I, when i look at something like that because it's so contrasting it's either this or that it's either this or that i draw this line you better choose and then i'm i'm asking myself what's the cutoff point when am i here and i'm when am i there as i as i wrestle with this i come to this conclusion i i don't know i don't know where the cutoff line is okay all i know is jesus must take first place Because he will have the last word. That's my focus. So in other words, my focus is, as much as I know that he will have the last word, I don't keep thinking all that. What I can do now is I must put him first place. So as I look at that first place, giving Jesus first place, then I'm able to leave him to pronounce the last word, whatever that is. Jesus has the last word. And that's why Jesus must take first place. We come to a final contrast, number seven. Finding versus losing. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a concluding statement. In other words, the Lord might be saying, excuse me, in case you still don't get it, let me say it in another way for you persecution and death is the context once more. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so when you look at that context, we know that Jesus is really talking about if you want to preserve your physical life, if you want to look out for your physical life, then there will be a consequence. But if you are prepared to lose this physical life, then you will find that other consequence. That's the it. But the question is, what is this it? Chapter 10, verse 39 parallels the first statements which we looked at just now in the beginning about confessing and denying. If Jesus confesses us before His Father, which means there's an acceptance, will you agree? Then eternal life would be the result of that. But if Jesus says, no, I deny, then that's a rejection, then we lose that eternity, or to be more accurate, we lose that eternal life. Instead, we have eternal death, which we looked at in the previous teaching. And so if you want to paraphrase and put in those words to make it clearer, he who finds his physical life will lose eternal life. He who loses his physical life for my sake will find eternal life. Do you think this is too extreme? Once again, when huh? I mean, you look at this one line again, it's like, are you sure? It's like it's too, too much to stomach, isn't it? I'm sure Jesus will never do that. Are you really sure? I mean, this is Matthew, you know. Maybe this is before the cross, and so this is not applicable to us. Are you taking this out of context? Look at Revelations chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 to the church of Sardis. This is Revelation. If you think Matthew is too early in the New Testament, then can you fast forward all the way to Revelation? It's way past the cross already. Jesus gave this pronouncement to the church in Sardis. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Then he tells them, you be careful, be watchful, strengthen the things that remain, those that are ready to die, meaning to say there's still hope, I'm giving you a warning. Because I have not found your works perfect before God. But he says, amongst you, there are those who are faithful. Amongst you, there are those who are still pressing on. They are enduring. They are not letting go. No matter how difficult it is, they are not compromising. And then he gives this word of encouragement to these people. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. Matthew, he says this, first book of the New Testament. Revelation, he says exactly the same phrase. Last book of the New Testament. You make your decision. You come to your own conclusion and your point of view. Is Jesus joking? Is He giving an empty threat? Or is He serious to say, come on guys, you've got to hang in there. If you say you believe me and you confess my name, then live that way. This is not a play game thing. And then he concludes as he does for all the other different churches. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You've got to extend this principle if you want because not all of us might face a gun to our head or a real cross. So some of us will say, yeah, finding our own life means uh, trying to pursue our own personal agendas versus a Jesus agenda. You mean if I make a lot of money and I don't serve in the church, does it mean that I, I lose my eternal life? So extreme, huh? Are you sure or not? I still attend cell group, you know. I pay my tithe, you know. Can I tell you my answer? I don't know. All I know is Jesus has the last word. I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I can only spur you on. I can only provoke you with the Word of God without condemnation. I can only help you evaluate. All I know is He has the final word. I don't have the final word. But my question for you is, does He have first place? You can't run away from that question. Don't try and fudge around the Scripture. Don't try and justify I'm preaching and staying as close to Scripture because it's not easy to preach this topic. But I want you to do your part to study Scripture so that you come to your own point of conviction, that you can then live out of that conviction and not because this guy is trying to scare you into heaven. And even, even if I do that, you can say thank you and I say you're welcome. So is it just black or white? I mean, look at all these contrasts. Is it just black or white? What about, what about this thing called grace? What about grace? Surely there, is, there has to be grace in this. And I say, yes, there is. We spoke about Peter just now. If anyone in the Bible has a clear record of denying Jesus, he would be the one. Not once, not twice, three times. He says, I don't know this man. I don't know what you're talking about. He even cursed. And then later on, By the grace of Jesus and of God, he was restored and he lived all out for Jesus. Finally, you know, tradition has it that he was crucified upside down. Does he have eternal life? Did he live for Jesus? We know he died for Jesus. What's the verdict? Compared with another person, but not a real character, but if you watch the movie Silence, about these two Jesuit priests who went to Japan and in that time, the Japanese lords, shoguns, they were persecuting the converts. And there's this rather comical character, his name is Kijijiro, and he was the Japanese guide to these two priests. But the funny thing about this guy is that he, although claims to be a Christian, a believer, he watched his family burn because they refused to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. But he he renounced. He spat on a picture or an image of Jesus, and so he got away scot-free. He lived to tell another day, another story. But over and over again through the movie, he does that. Every time he's caught, he spits on the image of Jesus. Every time he's caught, he steps on the image of Jesus, and he lives And he's used as an example to the believers to say, it's so easy. All you need to do is just to step on this Jesus that you say you believe, and it's good. It's fine. Look at him. You know, he's, he's alive. But after he does that, he will come to the priest, and he will ask for forgiveness and absolution, and the priest prays for him, and he's okay again, and the next time he does exactly the same thing. At the end of the movie, somehow he gets arrested, And they find something on him that suggests that he's still believing in this Jesus. And he's led away. And we don't see it, but we presume that he was finally put to death. Question is, does he have eternal life? And you know my answer now. I don't know. Jesus has the last word. Is that amen? Jesus has the last word. But if you want to understand grace, then you must read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, I keep saying, is a tremendous book. It talks about faith, hope, endurance in the face of persecution and uncertainties and of loss. At the same time, it is a book of warnings and cautions against presuming the grace of God. And I highlight two passages for you to go back and study more. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, it says, If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Fiery indignation. Now, nobody likes these verses, correct? Because we keep thinking that there will always be A pardon for the sins isn't already taken past, present, and future. We ask all these kind of questions. And if we understand this, and if according to the law, it's already difficult, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Now, you talk about stepping on the image of Jesus. Hebrews here says it so clearly. You have trampled the Son of God underfoot, Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and listen to this, and insulted the spirit of grace. Strong words. And yet, Hebrews is a, a letter of hope, a letter of encouragement to keep the faith, to say, don't you know that these promises are sure and steadfast? And yet, there is a passage here that calls to attention, a warning. The other passage is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, now looking, be careful, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Don't fall short of the grace of God. How? The root of bitterness begins to come up. You get frustrated with the the, the challenges and the problems that are there. Then the flesh begins to take over. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Look at the context. It's about giving up of a birthright. Friends, we are sons and daughters of the Most High. See, when the writer talks about this, he's saying you're counting that useless. You're counting that cheap. You're willing to give up that birthright for a morsel of food. For you know that afterward, when Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, look at the words, he was rejected and he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. We have grace. Peter experienced the grace. Kichijiro experienced the grace upon grace upon grace. But when you presume upon that grace, I don't have an answer for you. I don't have any word, not that my words count, because Jesus has the last word. And my encouragement for you is, will you put him in the first place? He has to take that first place. This has been a passage of contrasts. By now you would have realized that our title is also a contrast, that Jesus has a last word but Jesus must take the first place. I've said much and I I think I've said enough. I leave you with this thought. There is no question, once again, that Jesus will have the last word. The question once more for us, is he taking first place? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when you share your word, when you teach your disciples, you say it clearly and you say it plainly. Some of these words are very hard to accept, Lord. Very hard to stomach. We prefer not to know about them. But Lord, it is by your grace, Lord, that you share it with us. That no person can one day stand before you and say, I didn't know. I was not taught this. No one shared this with me. And so I pray, Lord, may we respond correctly. And yet, Lord, it's not out of a wrong, unhealthy fear. But we have a healthy, reverent fear because our God is a consuming fire. But at the same time, You are our Father. And so, Lord, we are assured that You will never leave us alone. You will always help us so that we can walk correctly by Your Spirit, according to Your grace, to live for Jesus and if needed, Lord, to give our lives for Him. And so help us, Lord. Judge one another so that finally, When Jesus comes as judge, we would love to hear the last word that he has to say. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.